Yeah. So it was a pretty awesome week this last week. <laughs> Let's just come forward if you need prayer at this time. <laughs> I love technology. Uh, well, if you're new, my name is Jim. I'm the campus pastor here. We're just so glad you're here with us and uh, to worship with us. But yes, this last week was an amazing week. We had an amazing time. And that was just a highlight. All week we were showing you on social media and videos we we're sending out of the amazing fun and spiritual elements of the week with all of our 545-ish, I think somewhere around there, kids that were at Flip Camp. And this whole room and church had to be transformed because confetti cannons were blowing off in here and kids were having a blast and God was moving in the hearts and lives of young people. It's just one of my favorite weeks to see the next generation that can come to church and have fun and see God move. And man, I just want to say too, on behalf of our church, if you volunteered this last week, uh, can we just give volunteers a round of applause? I think it was literally hundreds of volunteers. Just so many people giving up, taking off work for an entire week and their mornings off and that kind of thing just to pour into the next generation and weeks and months of preparation that many uh, gave uh, time in this church uh, for. And so just want to say thank you. I want to highlight too, over the last number of weeks, really the last month, we've been talking about our our campaign to reach the world in these little boxes. And I harp on it every week because I think it's super important. And maybe you haven't gotten one of these yet, but I wanted to highlight it because the, the Flip Camp kids did their own little campaign over the course of just a few days for Flip. And, and can you imagine 550-ish kids put their life savings in these little boxes and they brought in over 500 pounds of coins? that had to be taken, uh, they were taken to a credit union, and it's pretty amazing. I just want to compel you with this, and maybe this will encourage you, because I saw kids literally holding their piggy banks that were bursting, and their life savings was in there because they wanted to reach the world for Jesus. And those kids alone, over the course of Flip this last week, raised $4,500 uh, towards the campaign. I mean, to me, that's... That's pretty amazing as we were filling cars with 500 pounds of change. Poor Ben Fielder taking it to the bank. But I just want to compel you. I mean, if, if 500 kids can give their life savings to reach the, the world for Jesus and raise 4,500 days in four days, what can this church do? Man, can we give up Starbucks uh, a couple times a week and put that money in this box and in July bring it back? to reach the world for Jesus. And so I just wanted to compel you all. Our kids have set the bar, okay? And may we follow in the same direction in just selfless obedience and maybe giving up some things to see the next uh, generation and the world really uh, reach for Jesus Christ. It's pretty amazing. I was really, I was just blown away uh, when we heard that uh, this last week and what they did. So had a great week and uh, man, we're just, I'm glad it's over. I'm tired. But uh, it's going to be uh, uh, um, uh, just a looking forward until next year when we can do it again and maybe have more than that uh, kids come and celebrate together. So if you would, uh, turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, that's where we're going to be. Um, and today uh, we're continuing a series. Last week we took a break from our series Father's Day and just looked at, at a psalm talking about fathers, the ultimate picture of father who is God himself 
And hopefully you got something out of last week as my iPad overheated in the sun, and I tried my best to remember my notes from scratch. Um, but it was a great time just across the street on Father's Day, celebrating dads, celebrating men, and just having a great time together out on the hill. We had gorgeous, beautiful weather. And uh, today we're just going back and getting back into our series, which is called all things new. And we've been looking at just the last number of chapters in Revelation to see a picture of what is to come in the future, of what God has for us, even what Ryan and the team was singing, New Jerusalem. We're going to get into that as God makes all things new. And in light of that, it should impact you and I on how we live here and now. And I've been saying that over the last number of weeks as we've been looking at it, man, what we think about the future, what we view about the future, what we long for in the future will impact how we live today. We can't get around that. What we're looking forward to, what we're longing for, and, and I'll get into it, I think that there's some problems because we're not longing for anything in the future. It is the trouble and the struggle. But what I want to see in Revelation chapter 21, just the first eight verses today, is that God is making all things new. He's going to. He's, the trajectory is in motion. He's going to make all things new. But before we get in, I, I think this is part of what I, what I was alluding to is the struggle that I have. I think I struggle with it, and I think you struggle with it. I think the American church predominantly, massively struggles with it. We don't, honestly, we don't truly appreciate what is to come. So many of us are not longing for what is to come or appreciate what is to come because we're so wrapped up in finding satisfaction in the present. We're not longing for, we're not anticipating, we're not looking forward to the future in real time. Most of the time when that happens is when we get a, 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 a you know, a, a word that we have an illness and maybe life is coming short or whatever it may be. We begin to think about the longing and the hope we have, but in the day-to-day -day operational goodness of life, we're many times so distracted, wrapped up in the satisfaction of here and now and the present that we don't have a, a holistic, holy, motivational view of the future. So because of our satisfaction with the world and what it has to offer today, we don't often long for or, or talk about Christ's return coming. We don't often talk about what's in store for us in the family of God in the future, right? And so we act like we should experience all the goodness and all the blessing of what God has promised us in the future, in the present life here and now. So here and now, we want health, and we want wealth, and we want comforts, and we want peace. Here and now. Can I tell you, there will never be ultimate health. There will never be ultimate peace. There will never be ultimate comfort here and now. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're looking forward to. And so while we may not say it out loud, or if I ask you, you'd be like, no, I don't think it's true. Really, I think in sometimes of our subconscious we hold very tightly to what the world has to offer today. And unknowingly, we, we slip into the trap of becoming so satisfied with what the world has for us now, there's no room for looking forward, longing for what is to come in the future. And, and we, the Western church, is probably the, struggles the most with it. Man, I traveled around the world doing mission stuff, and people in third world countries are longing for the day that they go get to, they get to be with Jesus, and all things are made right and new. 
And the, the, the trouble for the, the Western church is that we're so satisfied, we're so well taken care of, we have, we're not longing, all, most of us, for food or, or shelter or just the basic necessities of life. That we're, we're, we're so more abundant than that that we can get wrapped up and caught up in the, the satisfaction of the here and now and not long for the future. So let me ask you this. Do you believe, when you think about this question, do you believe that the greatest news for the Christian hasn't happened yet? The greatest news for the Christian has not happened yet. Is not it ultimate? See, the greatest news is that the, the gospel finds its ultimate place in making all things new in what we get to experience in Christ, where we'll be with God for, forever, and we don't have to spend time anticipating that. Maybe we'll be with Him. Man, can you just picture for a moment this morning like what that will be like? What would it be like to be in the presence of God? Can you truly picture yourself in the story of God, in the presence of the King? Is it something you anticipate, long for, look forward to? And, and if not, maybe it's because your experience here on earth and your eyes and your focus are maybe more set on the things of the world than the kingdom of God and, and what is to come for us, right? Because I think many Christians are satisfied with the picture of what is and not the reality or the excitement and the picture of what will come. So what happens is, and, and I'm speaking to myself, and I'm not just speaking to you, I, I have to teach myself this before I teach you, and, and my own experiences, it causes us to lack passion and motivation to live for the gospel now. It, it strips us of that. And oh, the church needs today motivation for the gospel here and now. And when we properly understand what we're talking about today, man, it should compel us to faith. It should compel us a greater passion and purpose for the kingdom of God. That revelation is one of the things that we get. It was meant to encourage the church to motivate us to continue to persevere in the here and now, ultimately looking forward to the, first, the future. And it should cut away at some of the complacency of your heart and my heart as we look to what is ultimately to come. And so I just want to look. These are some of the coolest, most beautiful verses in Scripture, Revelation 21. And I just wanted to motivate you today. I want you to grasp these things today, right now, the here and now, and my, my prayers that it will motivate us for the kingdom of God in the future. And so, when we look at John's vision, I just want you to see a few things. If you look with me in verses 1 and 2, uh, let's read it together. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, is what Ryan read earlier, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven out of heaven, excuse me, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That phrase is pivotal and key. So, so the first one, what I want you to grasp is see this new reality. This is a new reality of what we will experience in the, in the future. That, that revelation, just the, the first verses here, are this bridge that's happening in revelation between a heavenly and an earthly reality that now the two have, been come, have become one that there's this heaven and earth coming together, ultimately what Christ called us to pray for in the Sermon on the Mount, pray like this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This reality is coming forth now, that the two are becoming one, 
They're united. The final vision is this. The segment is, is the closing of the Bible. It's heaven and earth coming together where he comes to dwell with us, right? And uh, verse 1, it speaks of this new heaven and this earth, new earth. Now, this is important for us to understand. What's happening is God is acting. Uh, he's, he's taking the negativity or, or the bad, what we've been reading in chapters 19 and 20, dealing with Satan and, and the Antichrist and all of the false prophet and all these different things. He's dealing with the negative to make room for the positive. You see, chapter 20, I mean, it's, it was kind of fun to preach, but I mean, I don't know, it's, it's, it's exciting and it's almost audacious and crazy, but now you get to the final part of that in the movement is that there's a removal of evil so that all things can be made new and right and good. It has to make room for that, right? And this is, this is pretty awesome. It's this all-encompassing comparison between heaven and earth. Revelation is this. I want you to know that it's not a recreation. God isn't in the final moments that he has at the end of the word of God. He's not recreating heaven and recreating earth. This is not what's happening here. It's not a recreation, right? I just point that out because in the text it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old earth hath passed away, Right? So this isn't some recreation. No, there's just going to be a whole new reality. There's going to be a new reality of the heaven and earth existing together where negatives are all gone, as we'll see. Sin is all gone. Death is all gone. Tears are all gone. And so what it means is this new world is, is not a newness in origin, right? So in, in Genesis, when it says that God creates the world, it says, really literally, it says ex nihilo, literally out of nothing, God created the world. So God spoke, and the world comes into existence, and it's coming out of nothing as God speaks. That's not the same here. It's not that God's recreated an earth here. No, there's an ultimate renovation and transformation that's happening, and it's really kind of hard for us to understand many times. Like, you think about it, you're like, what does that really mean? Well, man, I'll just point you to the greatest example I can give you of what this ultimate renovation by the gospel will ultimately look like. When you get home, look in the mirror. This is what the gospel does. It takes someone like me who is dead, broken, sinful, had no hope in the future, and renovates me, changes me into a new creation in Christ Jesus. God didn't eliminate me and recreate me. No, he renovated and transformed my heart and life by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit ultimately through my whole life, and then finally in the presence of God. And this is exactly what God is doing here. You know, the gospel is not just for people. It says that the heavens and earth are longing to be made new in, in Romans, that the gospel is actually making all things new. That's the hope of what we're talking about. That meant the greatest. It's last year, uh, last summer, sorry, I was, I was in, in Wyoming fly fishing with like 20 pastors at this beautiful place, and we had hiked way back in to go fly fishing on this beautiful river and going through the mountains, and there's a place that we stopped, and there's four or five pastors, and we're hiking, and, and we stopped, and it's just stunning. And I'll never forget, one of them said, and this is a fallen earth. Can you imagine what the new heavens and the new earth will look like when it is not held down or bound by sin and brokenness, when God makes all things new, right? This is what Christ does. This is what the gospel is doing. 
the effects of the gospel is seen even in individuals like us. And it says the sea was no more. Does that mean there's no more oceans? When you get to heaven, you can't look at the ocean? I'm going to be pretty upset about that. I was out on Saginaw Bay fishing yesterday. I mean, just water is unbelievable. Does this mean the sea is no more? Really, the idea here is the sea in Revelation, in general, in, in their culture, it would have been seen as a hostile world, right? So that's why it's so hard when Peter gets out of the boat and walks on water because it was the abyss. It was the unknown. They didn't have travel like we could to look underwater. It was like where the abyss was. And so, man, if you fell down into the dark abyss, that's where the evil comes up. This was kind of their view. And even in Revelation, you see it here. When you look at it, in Revelation, it's known for the origin of evil, the nations that persecute the saints, the place of the dead, the location of the world's idolatrous trade, and then also a body of water. And so what, what they're saying here is that the, 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 the sea is no more. Evil is no more. The hostile things towards God are no more. This is what he's portraying. And then he says, the holy city and new Jerusalem and the bride, and all three of these terms are really reinforcing the same thing the church. That's why I'd say it's really important when he says in the text, the, the second verse, when he actually says, God pre- or prepared, he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from the heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So what are you and I as the church considered? The bride. And so these, these phrases... The, the bride in New Jerusalem and the holy city are really this referencing the same thing. The church, the people of God, from the beginning of the Garden of Eden till now, God um, ha- has been set against evil from the very beginning. And, and you think about it, within Revelation, there's another city mentioned in Babylon, and it's reinforcing the, the forces and the, the evilness of the world and the city and the empires of this world. And so now the New Jerusalem set against Babylon. Babylon's already been destroyed, and now here we have the symbol of God's church, his people, right? And so the new Jerusalem is not just a place for people. It is people for a place. The place is the new heaven and the earth, and the people are the bride of the lamb. And so it's this coming together of the people of God with God himself. But what I said at the beginning, I think, is key, right? That we have to see this new reality, C.S. Lewis has this unbelievable quote that I've, I've shared with you all before, and I think it's really true. I, I, I read it, and I'm so convicted when I read it because it's so me many times. I don't know about you. I'll just read it real quick. C.S. Lewis, in his, uh, in his book, The Weight of Glory and other things, he's, he's been quoted saying this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. So, your, your desires aren't too strong, rather, but too weak, he says. He says, your desires are not too strong, but your desires are actually probably too weak according to what we see in Scripture. And the Lord, he says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. 
And this is exactly what I'm getting at today. We're so easily pleased with the mud pies of the world, we can't imagine what is offered to us in a new heavens and a new earth that we will ultimately find all of our satisfaction, all of our goodness, all of our, all of our joy, and all is completed in what we long for in the future. But so much, we're distracted by the mud pies of this world. Sure, we enjoy the things of this world, and much of them are meant to be enjoyed in their goodness from God only when they're enjoyed in, the, enjoyed in the context of the reality of what is to come. But oftentimes, we get distracted, and it's the other way around. And a lot of us, honestly, um, I see in the church when I have conversations with people, we view the future in a super pagan way. So many people I know don't even have a healthy view, holistic view of what is to come in the future. Right? We have this weird pagan view, this nebulous, ethereal existence in the clouds with the angels. We're going to heaven to float and do something up there and all this different stuff, right? But that's not actually what Scripture says, right? It's a fully human existence free from the effects of sin. This is what we're longing for. All the colors, all the tastes, all the expressions, all the sounds will be heightened to to their actual full senses, right? And our motivation to share the gospel gets lulled to sleep, right? Because we are so minimized in our theology and understanding of the immeasurable differences of what is to come, right? This is the thing is we are not experienced the life God intended us here and now, We get nothing in this earth but just a shadow of what will be. Man, can you imagine for a moment what it will be like when God makes all things new and how incredible that will be? Man, our hope, our motivation for living Christ and living for Christ and sharing Christ now is a super filled understanding and vision of of the future that will free us from the dull, purposeless striving for the things of the world today, right? Well, not only just that, I want you to see and hear about our new home. Look what it looks what, look at it says in verse three with me. It says, and I heard a loud voice, right? So we just said, got this picture of Jerusalem coming down and heaven meeting earth. Now in verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's unbelievable. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. So I want you to hear about our new home. Our new home is that it's going to be all things new. It's amazing. This picture goes all the way back to Mount Sinai. If you remember what that is, right? Where God established the covenant that he had with his people, people of Israel, right? And now is the full reality, what we're reading about, of that being fully completed and fulfilled. So, right? So, Moses leads the people of God and the Israelites out of Egypt, and then they get to Mount Sinai, and there is where God promised to dwell with them. Right? And they were given all of these intricate, specific details on how to build a portable temple, what they called a tabernacle for the Lord. So as they're traveling, they had this tabernacle. It was very specific. It had a room where only God was and certain things, and things had to be done in great detail. If you ever read the Old Testament, right? 
And then ultimately, it would be found in a, in a, in a temple, right? And you can go to Israel on the Temple Mount and see where the temple was. Right now, there's a mosque there on the Temple Mount. This is free. Side note, my wife and I and some others are leading a trip to uh, Israel in March. I'd love for you to join us. I'll talk about that later. And you can see that, right? And, and here's the thing. So it goes all the way back, and now we're just getting a picture of that reality now, right? Did you notice that in one verse, John said the same thing three times? This is, this is the point. He, he mentioned it three times, right? He says, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. God is with his people. I mean, this is the ultimate climactic ending is that God is going to be with us ultimately, right? The, the picture of New Jerusalem that we're looking into the next couple of weeks, right, is this picture going all the way back that John sees in the future of the Holy of Holies, right? The, the, the temple and the tabernacle had this place where only God could be and only specific people could go in if they did everything right and they'd even tie a rope around their waist that if they didn't do right, they would be dead in the presence of God and if they didn't hear the bells, they would pull the priests back out and now the vision of what we have in the future is that God is going to be with man, there's no holy of holies. We're all in his presence. This is the longing that we have, right? Now, here in verse, there's Revelation 21. There's this glimpse of not just a holy of holies in a specific place that only a few people can go. No, it's, it's the whole city, the whole place. Every square inch of the reality of the future is remade into the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God with his people. And this has been the trajectory of God all the way through Scripture. If you just track it, right? From the very beginning, I just told you how God came and dwelled with his people, but it was very different in a tabernacle, in, in, in a temple. Then you read John chapter 1 and verse 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means tabernacled among us. And now here Jesus walks with his people and their presence with them in the cool of the day like he used to in Genesis again, and then ultimately leaves and leaves us with the Spirit of God, which we're living in right now where the presence of God is residing with us right now and the presence of God walks with you every single day and then ultimately we'll experience the Father when we go to be with him for all time and the holy of holies is every square inch of where you'll be in heaven. I mean, this is what, this is what God has been doing. This is his longing is to be with us. But is that, is that our longing to be with him? Or am I so distracted by being with all the stuff that I think will satisfy me here that my view of heaven is so broken? Heaven is not escaping earth. I'll just remind you. So many times we talk about the gospel like believe this and one day you'll get to go to heaven. We don't think, that's not a bad statement, but it, it, it breeds bad theology in our mind and bad expectation. It, it breeds this idea that heaven is escaping earth. You know in the future, heaven will be earth. Heaven is not a place. Heaven is a person, and his name's Jesus. If Jesus is not your longing in heaven, 
We need to do some serious soul considering whether we're going to the place where Jesus will be. Because the gospel is not, you believe this so you can escape this place. Someone once asked me, how could a good God send people to hell away from himself? Why wouldn't he just let all of um, everyone into heaven if he's a good God? Well, I, I just press on them to say, you, your view of heaven is so wrong. Heaven is not escaping a place. Heaven is a person. And how weird would it be that we show up to heaven and never knew the person that it's all about? The point of heaven is not getting away from a place or escaping an ultimate place. The goal of heaven is being with a person that I love and know and long to be with, like every earthly relationship I have here that I love and know and long to be with. Heaven is not a place. It's a, it's a person that I can ultimately be with every single day as the holy of holies is wide open and every square inch is the presence of God for all of time. And this is, this is our longing is Jesus Man, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care if the streets are made of gold. I don't care if there's a silver lake. I don't care if there's a, a gate with pearls. I care if Jesus is there. And, and our mind has to change about escaping into a longing, a longing to be with Jesus. Man, that's, that's, That starts with my longing to be with Jesus here and now. Man, if you don't long to be with Jesus day to day, I just don't know what heaven's experience will be like. It starts with my heart now, today, to be with God for all of time. And in that, man, he says, this is what the city will be like. This is what the existence will be like. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is the beauty of it. Think about all the ways that we as human beings hurt each other with racism, sexism, elitism, consumerism. All of it's gone, right? God's people are identified by one thing and one thing only. Man, praise God, no more party lines. No red, no blue, purple, green, whatever. No haves, no have-nots, no, no might-bees, or no, no whatever it, no ethnic barriers, no language barriers, no geographical barriers, no. The only identification will be that we are God's people and we are marked by Jesus. God is the prize, the ultimate prize. The result of the gospel is the achievement of Jesus, right? And when we get to experience him, all things will be made new. So, this question, what are you living for? What motivates you? What, what ultimately satisfies you? This isn't me beating down on you. I'm just asking questions. I think these are good things to ask. I ask them of myself. The hardest thing about being a pastor is come up and, you know, press into people and ask them hard questions when you don't ask yourself those same hard questions because I have to wrestle with them myself. What am I longing for? What, what, what motivates me, right? Well, lastly, in verses 5 through 8, we see, I want you to grasp and receive the promise of God's Word. Look what it says in verse 5. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty, 
I will give from the spring of living water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, this heritage, excuse me, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, Jesus here is the one that's called faithful and true. And he says something fascinating. He says, and I wonder if it doesn't ring a bell with you or remind you of another place in Scripture. He said, it is done. Do you remember something else that Jesus said? You're probably thinking of it. It is finished. When it's the end of his sacrificial work on the cross, he ended by saying, it is finished right? And now the victory of the cross is the, experiencing the final and full realization of that in the destruction of God's enemies and the salvation of the saints, right? And it's both completed, and Jesus says it is done. It is done. It's come to its ultimate end, right? And, and we know this will come to pass. Jesus knows this will come to pass because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He stands beyond the universe's beginning, and, and he's the sovereign creator from to the very end. And he says, man, I'm the water of life. We offer you the water of life. It, it's the throne of God is the water of life. And he says, man, if you're thirsty, drink without payment, he says. That's a beautiful thing by God's free gift through Christ. It's just a picture that I get to drink from the living water of God without payment. Man, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, there's nothing you did to give your salvation, to gain your salvation. There's nothing you gained. There's no, no ounce of it that was yours. It was fully and freely the grace of God by faith, right? He says, I give it without payment. Come to me, all who are thirsty. It's reminiscent of, and I will give you living water, right? Man, I quoted C.S. Lewis already, but what an amazing writer. If you haven't read C.S. Lewis, you need to. In his book, The Silver Chair, I want to read a, an excerpt from that. One of the main characters in the book is Jill. And at one point, Jill gets scared out of her mind after seeing this giant lion, who is the picture of Jesus. So she runs into the forest, and she runs so hard and so fast that she thinks she's going to die of thirst. And then she hears the, the gurgling brook of water, and, and she stumbles toward it until she realizes that between her and the brook is the lion. And he's the character that represents Christ in the book, as I said. And so she's so scared by the lion already and that she runs into the woods. She's so thirsty. She gets to this body of water, this, this flowing river. And then when she finally gets there, she finally realizes the thing between her and this water that she so longs for is the lion who is Christ in the story. This is what it says in the book. Are you thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Joe? And the lion answered, this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked for the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was, was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. 
Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she made a, 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 she made a step even closer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It, it didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it was sorry, nor as if it was angry. It just said it. I, I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen this stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. And what amazing picture of Jesus who is the Lion of Judah. He's not only the Lamb of God who died for our sins, he's the ferocious Lion of Judah. And in him, while he is so audacious, maybe even seemingly scary when you read the book of Revelation, he is the throne of God, which is the living water that will ultimately satisfy our souls, and we find all that we have in him. And only when we receive Jesus will we be satisfied. Only in Jesus will you find forgiveness and life. If you're here today or you're joining us online, only through Jesus can you dwell with God forever. I didn't say go to heaven. I said dwell with God forever that is our ultimate longing and hope. And for the rest of you here today that don't know Jesus, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you may be online and you're just watching randomly because someone shared a link with you. Man, if you're here today and you've never pressed in with Jesus, man, this is a warning from Scripture of the second death, the separation of G from, from, from God, the ultimate satisfying thing. It's not that you don't get to heaven, it's that you don't get to be with Jesus. Right? And then you read this and you're like, man, I'm, I'm one of those people. He says in verse 8, but for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. So everybody's covered today. If you tell me you haven't lied today, you're lying. So we're good. You're covered. Right? Everybody's covered. This is no elevation of sin. I'm sick and tired of in the church. We elevate this sin and not this one. You're a liar. I'm a liar. Praise be to God, by the grace of God, we're covered. And may I not be someone who's looking at the world, pointing at, man, this is a much worse sin. I'm not doing that. No, all of it is here. He covers it all, right? From cowardly to the detestable to the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. And he says the ultimate end is to them to be in the lake of fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Without the hope of Jesus, that is my future. So the, the, the choice is not whether you want to be marked as a liar, or I'm not sure if we have any sorcerers or wizards here, but the difference is we get, make, your, make the choice to follow Jesus. He offers us living water without payment today. And if you've never placed your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, today's that day. Choose Christ today. Because all of you in this room, myself included, everyone online, we are broken, poor sinner. We're all the same. And Christ in his goodness offers us living water 
by what he did on the cross, the shed blood of Christ for our sins in our place, that ultimately we don't get to escape this earth. We get to go and be with God for all of time. And I hope that it fires you up that God is on a path of making all things new, and we get to be a part of that. May it motivate us to live for the kingdom of God here and now, because all that you live for, you spend every single day, 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week, striving to climb a corporate ladder, that one day you will stand before God and you will have none of it. Now, it's no problem to climb the corporate ladder. There's no problem with having a lot of nice things or being wealthy or whatever it may be or enjoying the good things of God, but are we distracted by those things that we are not visioning here now the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God for the future? May it not be so. Pray with me. God, thank you today for um, just your goodness and your mercy in our lives and your ultimate, um, the ultimate joy that is only found in you, Jesus. Man, what a gift it is. Maybe people that ultimately long for a hope that is only found in you. Thank you for the picture in Revelation 21 of who you are, God, and what you've done and how you are making all things new by the power of the gospel. And one day you will say, it is done. That's my hope, God. My hope is not found in anything of this world. My hope is ultimately found in you. And God, with all that I have in me, it's not always the truth, but today I long for you to be my ultimate satisfaction, for you to be my ultimate longing, not to escape this world and go to a better place, but to be with you, God. And may that be cultivated by us being with you day to day right now. So God, even as we sing, I'm not sure where our hearts are today, but would you move in our hearts in such a way that we are spurred on from today to leave this place, to live for you, to long for you, and to ultimately walk in obedience with you until you come, Lord, and we get to see you face to face. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.